0: Hello and welcome to these audio recordings from Project Echo, West Vic PHN Hub, COVID-19 Pandemic Response Echo Network Series. This is the COVID-19 Echo Network Series 2, Session 8, and it's Thursday, 3rd of September. Good morning and thank you for joining us as we continue our conversations with our mini-series entitled Housing, Crowding and Caring, Part 2, The Health and Disability Interface. So we opened up our conversation last week with Associate Professor Deb Freeman describing the transmission dynamics of COVID in households and describing the inherent vulnerability that community members who lack independence of self-care face as they require close, close contact for many instances. Jackie Pearce, a long-time disability sector advocate, provided us with an overview of the housing sector, groups dependent on care and support, and the relevant governance and funding frameworks in this time of transfer and transition outside of the pandemic. We discussed the support systems impacted upon by efforts to minimise transition and highlighted the valuable role that primary care can play in providing accessible testing, interim advice, education support for care workers and continuing care for this group. This morning we'll hear from Ms. Chris Faulkner, General Manager of Operations and Support at the National Disability Insurance Scheme, about their response to outbreak prevention and planning and some of the questions and challenges that remain. So our agenda for today, uh, we'll have our infectious disease and public health advice update from um, Deb Freeman and Rachel Cowan um we'll hear a little bit more about what's progressing in planning in regards to outbreak prevention and response planning Uh, Chris Faulkner will describe uh the functions of the national disability scheme both prior to the pandemic and really what their role during the pandemic has been in prevention and response planning and introduce the uh ideas of about the health and disability interface and think about well what kind of really do we need to think about going forward as i guess we um you know, move out of this stage and into the next uh, where as our restrictions ease. We'll have a case presentation by Dr. Robert Ward, GP and board member of Gateways. Um, he'll pose uh, questions for our group to solve. And then we'll finish up with our rapid five answers about infectious diseases and disability care sector. As always, health pathways update by Dr. Kate Graham. I'm now going to hand over to our first prevent- presenter, Associate Professor Deb Freeman. Thanks, Deb. Thanks, Bianca. Good morning,
1: everybody. Uh, September the 3rd. Um, I guess we might put up the, um, this slide. So I guess um, I put this up and you can see the link at the bottom. This is to the cDNA epidemiology data. They put out a report fortnightly. This is the one put out in the middle of August. So it shows the two weeks prior to the 16th of August. If you just look at the top line for Victoria, The number that I want you to look at is the rate per 100,000 population that we were at. And that was 86.3, which is a very, very high rate. Compare it to the rest of Australia where no other state was even above one per 100,000 population. So I think everybody should just keep that in their mind if they had any doubts about where we have been sitting at. And then the next slide, thank you. So this slide highlights really nicely the first wave and then the second wave and it indicates some of the different measures that were put into place including stage and four restrictions and what you can see is that we're now in the decline phase unfortunately where we're at now we've got 22 percent of cases that arise secondary to community transmission Um, the next slide thanks Um, The other thing that I wanted to highlight is now that we have more data, in the beginning of this pandemic, we were reliant on things that we could find out from overseas. This is um, Australian people presenting with COVID-19, looking at their symptoms. And I think the things to take away from it are that cough and sore throat, we were all aware are common symptoms of this illness. But look how common runny nose is. And we were previously told it's not like a cold. So keep that one in mind. And then fever um, and headache are are below that. But you can see that really only about 20% of patients have a fever. So I think that's just important to keep in mind. Um, Epidemiologically, if we look at our region, Colac is now really an official hotspot. Um, If you... Think about those numbers per 100,000 that we looked at before. Colac is in the position of having about 1,000 cases per 100,000 population because it is a very small town and we're experiencing another um, outbreak of infection there. And It's a combination of both bad luck and the fact that there's numerous industries there Um, After the Australian lamb outbreak resolved, and we were all so grateful, we've now got a cluster which could get much larger. And we're just at the very beginning stages of that, includes Buller Ice Cream and a few other industries. There's a lot of other things going on. And so I thought I might just highlight what those big things are. Um, One is the Healthcare Worker Infections Task Force, which had been set up it has a number of things that it's doing, one of which is developing something called a respiratory protection program. And this um, respiratory protection program is going to be a minimum standard that each hospital has to adhere to, including things such as fit testing for masks. And currently there's a trial underway at Northern Hospital to do fit testing with N95 masks. There's also buddies or spotters for PPE and there's a lot of other things part of the respiratory protection program including ensuring adequate ventilation and most of you who've been in some of the older Victorian hospitals know that there are some old parts of hospitals that don't have the ideal um, ventilation. The other things that are going on is that there's sort of new teams set up to do data analysis and some of the data that's coming out is telling us about healthcare workers that have become infected you probably have all heard this but just for anyone who hasn't the majority of people who become infected are nurses especially nurses in aged care Um, so while we have a lot of craft groups very worried about their individual infection risk by far and away nurses on COVID wards or in aged care where there have been outbreaks are at the highest risk there's also studies underway one of them at the northern looking at aerosol analysis What this is looking at by doing air sampling is looking at the behaviour of droplets that have COVID-19 in them and looking at how they fall on surfaces. It's studies like that that are going to inform things like cleaning practices and infection control standards. Um, The other things that are being worked on, so we're consistently working on the PPE guidelines, the conventional use of PPE, and aligning them for aged care for the community and for the acute sector. Um, These PPE standards are going to be de-escalated as the cases reduce. There's another program looking at cleaning which is called Clean Victoria. And then there's a whole roadmap including how we get um, surgery back on track. and then finally, I just wanted to comment about a report that just came out this week on the New March aged care outbreak that occurred earlier this year in New South Wales. And I just wanted to mention that it highlighted the extremely important but underutilised and undervalued role of GPs in aged care outbreaks. So I just wanted to give a shout out to Josh Bai and the other GPs who are doing such an amazing job in our aged care facilities, including um, OPAL that's still at the tail end of an outbreak. Can I just go back to that last slide, Gemma, sorry. Um, This was another thing that I came across. This is from Ontario, where they talked about the list of hazard controls that you're supposed to have in place in the setting of a pandemic. The first ones are called engineering and system controls. And these include ways to reduce exposure, whether it means putting people in isolation, having good ventilation, negative pressure, rooms, etc. The second one is a set of administrative controls, so that's policies and procedures that say you cannot come into this room or we can only have two people in this room and it includes training of people and that obviously also includes the larger role of screening and testing The third of these, and actually the most visible, but actually the lowest tier in the hierarchy is PPE. I wanted to put this up just to highlight that we put an enormous amount of emphasis on PPE as our protection and our defence in this pandemic, but it really is the lowest tier of the hierarchy and we have to make sure that we've got the engineering and administrative controls on track. Um, That was all that I had to say for now and I'm happy to answer questions later. Thank
0: you. Thanks, Deb. Rachel Cowan, over to you. Thanks.
2: That was great. Thanks, Deb. That was uh, a really good update about what's happening in the world. Um, Just giving you a a verbal update today, things have been relatively civilised up where I live. Um, We've had Ballarat... Sort a of contact tracing team is doing a really good job. Uh, what's being listed on the website uh, with the Department of Health is not necessarily accurate. Um, a lot of the cases that are, are listed, we know that if they're listed according to the local government area that they actually live in, but don't necessarily, uh, haven't actually contracted their case from there or aren't actually being married, uh, managed in there. We've got five in Ballarat and all of those have been cleared. One of the things that Department of Health have let us do is now, um, in the regions allow people to, or a select group of people, usually the ID physicians or infection control clear cases within a a region. And we're responsible for that. So those five in Ballarat will be coming off as well. Um, There are two in Horsham, one of which is uh, lost lost to follow up and the other one is not cleared yet, they're immunosuppressed and so there's ongoing monitoring around that person. Um, And there's also 10 in Moorrable of which Uh, Ballarat's involved in three of those cases, Um, eight of those, uh, sorry five of those are actually um, in uh, Melbourne and actually being managed by Melbourne groups and certainly there's also a case in the Pyrenees who's in hospital in Melbourne so from a local perspective we're relatively civilised we haven't got any new outbreaks um, At the moment.
0: Um, I'm now going to hand over to Ms Chris Faulkner, Um, she's the uh, general manager of operations and support and she's the incident management controller from the NDIS. Uh, Welcome this morning Chris, hello. Thanks very much for the opportunity to talk to you all this morning.
3: Um, It's all very rapid fire, everyone's talking very fast so I'll I'll, I'll take that pace as well. You've got (laughs) ten minutes, you've got ten minutes so you you take your time. So, a brief update for those that don't know, and I'm assuming most people do now, that the uh, NDIS has been around for almost seven years and the trial site was in the Barwon Southwest region to start with. And at the moment, we have um, almost 400, well, just almost 400,000 participants in the scheme nationally. In Victoria, that's about 100,000 participants um, to date at the moment. So, Victoria, in terms of people with a disability, with lifelong functional impairment, uh, most of those people are into the scheme. Any new entrance now is usually as a result of a a catastrophic injury or uh, or an illness that progresses to lifelong functional impairment. So, uh, that's, that's the cohort we are responsible for, that very end of uh, uh, disability for um, lifelong function impairment. And then, of course, there's a a recognition of a very greater number of people that have a disability but that aren't in the scheme of which we which we don't fund. So the way the agency works is that someone is uh, enters the scheme not on a diagnosis but what their functional impairment is. So it's about um, 0 to 65 Australian citizen, um, lifelong functional impairment, unable to contribute either um, socially, economically or able to support themselves. So they're the cohort that we fund. Um, and we fund individuals, and that's the difference now, I guess, going forward, and, and this, this is... Um, uh, I guess, uh, has provided a significant challenge in this, in this environment at the moment in terms of COVID and infection rates, because we fund the individuals, we don't fund providers. So individuals purchase their services from providers. And the biggest challenge in this p- space at the moment is in residential settings. And obviously, those that are living in residential settings usually have quite significant disabilities and need a lot of support. And so that that is needed to be done by those providers looking after those individuals. And in prior to COVID in terms of pricing and costing and all the rest of it, this impact was not factored for. So the impost on service providers to provide a level of care and prevention to uh, people with a disability has been very challenging for them. So as part of this, I am now a member of the Victorian Disability Outbreak Group, and there I meet with uh, DHHS on how we can do some preventative work for those with a disability in community. And as I said, significant challenge for people with a disability if you want to do preventative work, because there are often challenges in trying to get people to self-isolate, use PPPE, all those sorts of things. So, um, at the moment, BitGov is looking at mapping or in the process of mapping health clusters to a number of um, settings across Victoria. There's four metro and five rural regional settings of health clusters that are assisting in um, managing outbreaks um, in disability settings. So, uh, what usually happens if there's been a positive case, and that's obviously notified to uh, public health, then there's an outbreak management team that will visit that site and provide support in how they can do some of that preventative work in terms of either uh, making sure we can link them into healthcare if needed um, how and try and um, isolate an individual that may be positive or, or move people that out there are negative. And the way the agency assists in that is we will put more money into a plan to enable a provider to get extra staff to look after those individuals or do short-term accommodation to help isolate Of course, the challenge has been, as we all know, is workforce. So all good intent and there's funding there for individuals, for both providers and participants to have access to to PPE on those preventative measures. But the challenge is about workforce. And that's uh, um, work we're doing with um, VicGov at the moment is how do we identify a workforce that can come in and support people in a residential setting in particular, and, and for providing care in a person's home if they need that personal care. So uh, we know that the, the impulse has been that the providers are to seek uh, from labour hire agencies first to help build their workforce. And if that doesn't work, and then we, we step in and work with VicGov and trying to find um, Larger providers that might be able to use their workforce to go back and look after those uh, participants in their homes. So significant challenges for us all, um, recognising that Victoria's had a large number of cases, and and the the data presented before is really uh, fascinating. Um, but the challenge continues, and we're trying to manage this now in uh, much. The lessons learnt from Victoria to prevent that our Outbreak increasing in New South Wales because, as we said, um, our most significant challenge is how do we support a workforce into looking after people with a disability in challenging circumstances. So, um, I'm happy to take questions. I didn't have a presentation, but um, I hope I've given it just a general overview. But as I said, the agency is there to to put supports into a person's plan. The providers have been um, and uh, have had. Uh, support in terms of getting PPE, and of course they've got access to the national stockpile to do that as well. So. Thank you very much for the opportunity
0: and happy to take questions. So let's get questions forward now about um, the NDIS role. And I think we, um, Chris, you were also going to just explain that that health disability interface and what we mean when we say that. Do you mind just giving us a, um, a description of that? And it, guys, pop your questions in the chat or in a moment, I'll invite you to come off mute. We've got an opportunity to ask Chris some questions. Just for 20 Yeah, more that's
3: months, it. yeah the, health, the health disability interface is a very challenging space as we know. So at the moment, what the agency fund somebody with a health issue that is related specifically to their disability. What we keep arguing for, of course, is the whole point of the scheme was about people living an independent life as as a general member of community, so the expectation is that someone with a disability, if they have a health issue, uh, have the same response as every other member in the community. So, if they're sick because they're sick, then they get the same response as every other person in community. What we're trying to do here in um, the COVID outbreak is if someone is unwell, they are um, linking him into uh, Epworth uh, Hospital in the Home approach at the moment to try and keep people in their residential setting um, until there's a point that they may need to go to hospital. So they have in, in-home in nursing to monitor and take care of um, individuals in those residential settings. This is in the metro area at the moment. I haven't seen uh, an outbreak in rural regional area to that effect, but certainly in the metro area, that, that's the work that's being done. So local, um, uh, some of those health clusters like in eastern, Eastern Health, for example, have used nurses to go into residential settings to, to monitor, take temperatures um, twice a day, making sure that they're stable. And then there's a, a obviously a, tr- a trigger or a tipping point that they will then transport them to hospital if that's what's needed to do. We've been very fortunate to date that we haven't had um, uh, a large number of individuals with a disability uh, succumbing to that. I think our, our numbers at the moment, we've had three three people pass away um, with a disability related to COVID. So, that's that's been very fortunate. I'm not following the aged care uh, way at the moment and we're monitoring that very carefully and trying to take lessons learnt from that to, to support people that may be ill um, from COVID.
4: It's not really a question, but it's just something that I want us to think about for the future. We can't necessarily do much about it in the middle of a pandemic, but I do think there's amazing opportunities for the health and disability sector to work together going forward around this health disability interface and I think it's really important for GPs to know that um, NDIS does have really clear Uh, operational guidelines around the health disability interface, so what they will and won't fund in an NDIS plan versus what they expect health to pick up, which is what Chris was alluding to. But there's also a really good document on the NDIS website about the disability-related health supports that the NDIS can fund under their legislation. And um, I've sent those two documents through to Gemma, I think, to put out to this network as part of this conversation. So it's more of a comment um, than a question. Thanks, Chris.
3: Can I just add to that, we are a member of the COVID-19 Health Roundtable, uh, where there's many representatives both from health and disability sector there to talk through how we can do this um, plan better in a preventative way going forward, particularly even in influenza outbreaks um, in the future.
0: Chris, we just had a, when we were having our chats prior um, earlier in the week, um, we talked about you know NDIS reviews and how in, you know in pre-pandemic times they do take time to um, you know you know really change a plan. Um, is there the opportunity if, if someone's health conditions have been compromised due to their disability and perhaps the impact of the risk, the pandemic response? Is there an opportunity for a rapid review to adjust um, to their support and care needs?
3: Yes, there is. So at the moment now, uh, we're certainly doing a whole lot of changes in how that review, those reviews work. But certainly in this pandemic COVID time in the 1-800 number and on those, um, you know, the little alerts you get, there's a COVID line that will put you through to um, make a, a, a record of a, an early review first thing in, in the morning if required to get those supports into somebody's plan. So at the moment, each of those plans, if someone is found COVID positive or COVID close, there's uh, extra funds in there to be able for have um, extra support workers to come in and help. Um, certainly that that money can be used to if they want to bring in a a nurse to look after them at that time in their home but we we want to be really careful that someone with a disability is um, diagnosed or um, uh, has the same opportunity to have an examination because we know disability can mask health symptoms sometimes as well so we've got to be really careful about how how that is managed but certainly uh, I would say if somebody's Health condition is getting worse. It's a health responsibility first and foremost. And then what can we do to make sure to support somebody in that response as they get well?
0: Thank you. So I guess I've got three questions that are coming out of this one. I'm going to throw to Deb in a moment. Sorry to put you on the spot, Deb. Um, Chris talked about clusters and I'm wondering what the conversations have been in regards to preparation for a cluster response in our region. Um, Rachel, I don't know if we talked about this. I meant to ask you about the safer care tool and the use in the disability sector. And as Chris describes <laughs> the potential masking of COVID symptoms, safer care tool something we talked a lot about in the RAC setting. You know, can we apply the safer care tool to this uh, group of people and um, there's a third one Anita you and I didn't get to catch up but you offered to talk to the um, goals of care for people who might not be competent Um, again just message me in the chat and let me know if you're happy to speak to that so I'll throw to you Deb first.
1: So are we prepared for clusters in in our region I think that was your first question I think the answer is we're extremely well placed to manage that We've got a lot of staff very well trained to handle it. Um, So I don't think that's the problem. I wanted to answer a couple of other questions that came up in the chat. One of them was about fit testing and fit checking. So just to clarify, fit checking is something that you do every time you put a mask on. You do it with every type of mask, but specifically an N95 mask where you check the seal and you check the fit and you check that there's no leak. So that's supposed to be something that each person does themselves every time they put a mask on. FIT testing is a more formalised procedure using engineering and it's quite time-consuming. It takes uh, at least 30 minutes to do um, a FIT test on somebody and traditionally this hasn't been something that's been widely done in Australia. Recently Adelaide did FIT testing and they rolled out a program of FIT testing um, but it hasn't been widely done in Australia the what what will the role of it be in the future it will probably be for high risk frontline staff i would think currently the rollout of it and they've started doing it at the northern uh, apparently they can only do about 20 a day so it's very slow going so they have to focus on the highest risk which is probably covid ward nurses and nurses in an area with an outbreak um the other thing to say is that the what's the importance of it? It's about knowing that for people who have different sized and shaped faces, whether or not they can achieve an adequate fit so that an N95 mask really does filter 95% of particles um, for them and, importantly, to know if you fail a fit test. If you fail a fit test, you can either try other types of N95 masks or you know that you're not somebody who should be working on the front line. So it's the same as if you know that you're not somebody that responded to hep B vaccination, then you shouldn't be doing procedures that expose you to bloodborne viruses. It's kind of analogous to that. Um, I guess the other thing just to mention... Um, contact tracing in Melbourne is really now very up to date and they're getting on to things a lot more quickly than what they were last month. And I think that just indicates that the public health system got temporarily overwhelmed by the very large numbers. And then laboratory turnaround remains a very important issue. We know some labs are better than others. I think regional areas suffer one of the reasons for this is the transport just to get the specimens to the lab means that they never get tested that day. They almost always get tested the day after. But I think regional Victoria gets really a raw deal when it comes to testing turnaround. Um, Right now, one of the things that I should have mentioned before is of the other things going on, there's um, a new program that's going to be rolled out testing high-risk staff. Right now we're sort of uh, negotiating about who those high-risk staff would be, but we think it's staff working on COVID wards being sort of the highest risk and then maybe, maybe aged care nurses where there have been an outbreak, that would be the sort of um, things that we'd be doing. But what we know is the more times that we take on asymptomatic testing and there's some issues with asymptomatic testing that we've talked about before, but the more that we do that, the more that we could increase the turnaround time for all of the people that are symptomatic, the people in emergency departments, the people in hospitals. So there's always a trade-off when you increase the volume of work in, in that area. Yeah, I'm this-
0: going to um, pause the, some of those rapid-fire questions for the end. I just want to keep grabbing hold of some of the ones relevant to um, the disability. Is there a policy in group homes to remove the first case to quarantine facility to protect the others in the group home? Is, is there a policy?
3: Um, the individual providers to to develop their policies according to the National Quality Safeguards Commission. So there is advice on those guidelines and we follow the public health guidelines for that. There is certainly the ability to remove somebody in terms of funding for, for a provider to do that if that's what's needed.
0: So quarantine, so we're talking about an accommodation, a special accommodation that can be served. Is there additional support available for those NDIS clients who have had day programs and supported workplaces closed? This can be a significant increased burden mm-hmm. on families and carers to manage this.
3: Yeah, and the, there is funding in the plans to be able to do that. So if the providers are unable to assist people in day programs, now they're able to re-divert their workforce into helping into, into, the, into home situations if needed.
0: Thank you, um, Rachel. How did how have you got a, something that you wanted to say about the safer care tool in the disability setting?
2: I think it's an incredibly useful tool, and I think it would be something that could definitely be transitioned and used within the within the disability setting. Um, I think that uh, especially for those that those. Um, that are in the disability setting, that are non-verbal, that are intellectually impaired, that it would be a really useful tool as far as um, monitoring within the environment. I don't think it's something that necessarily needs to be done every day, but certainly if there is an outbreak or, an, you know, or a cluster in a disability service, that it would be a worthwhile tool to be rolling out for the rest of the clients in that uh, residential facility. Thanks, Rachel, and goals of care and thinking about the use of what we'd
0: talked about uh, two weeks back about goals of care um, in uh, RAC settings and uh, how we need to think about this when when working with intellectually disabled or people who might be non-competent.
5: Yeah, so the concept of capacity often uh, stumps a lot of GPs. So I'm just... The basic aspects of capacity. So to be able to make your own decision, you need to have capacity. And that um, capacity can be for lots of different decisions. So a testamentary capacity, so that ability to make a will, is really quite rigorous um, and much different to a lifestyle decision capacity. Um, So that's for living arrangements or medical treatment. Um, When we as GPs decide that somebody does or doesn't have a lifestyle decision making capacity it's based on a clinical judgment so it's very difficult for somebody to refute or um you know take us to court over um, compared to that testamentary or legal um, decision making capacity so that's the first thing i want to say is that you know you really are going to go with your gut instinct as to whether or not this person can um has capacity to make decisions. At their medical treatment. Um, and the second part is that it may fluctuate depending on the situation. So if you think about somebody with a disability um, coming into the emergency department who's very unwell, they probably lack the capacity to make um, medical treatment decisions at that stage because they're too unwell. But a couple of days later on the ward when they're stabilised, they may well have regained that capacity. So there's a great RACGP article um, if you just Google capacity for um, GPs and it goes through it. But uh, when we as clinicians are deciding on capacity, you need to be able to understand the information, you need to be able to retain it and then communicate a decision that's um, based on consequences and benefits. So if you think that somebody doesn't have capacity to make a lifestyle, so a living arrangement or a medical treatment decision, um, then you need to go back to that hierarchy. So you would hope that somebody with a disability actually has these affairs in order if they're in a group home, but we certainly know that that's not the case. So your substitute um, decision-maker actually is that hierarchy Um, that is under the Medical Treatment Decision Act. So, of course, it's a spouse to begin with, uh, parents and then siblings in a particular order. But what you would really want is for somebody to be nominated as a medical treatment decision maker, which would be um, in the old days, your medical enduring power of attorney or um, somebody under the new Act in 2018 who got nominated as what's called a medical treatment decision-maker.
0: Now, Anita, I'm just in the interest of time. Thank you very much. Um, Thank you for that comprehensive response. So that concludes the panel presentation for this session. We'll bring you any other snippets that we can, but come along and join the discussion next week. I'm going to throw over to Kate Graham now to sum up the health pathways.
6: Hi, I'm going to just start by um, sharing my screen just to take everyone on a bit of a tour through the COVID health pathways, just um, because a lot of things have been updated over time. So what we've got here is when you sort of go into COVID-19, you've got sort of the chapter headings. Um, Some of these chapter headings are going to have more than one thing in them. So we've got the main listings here. The ones that have more in them, assessment and management, practice management and technology, both have a couple of things underneath them, and um, the referrals and advice as well. So we're under assessment and management. We've got all these different sort of assessment and management. The initial assessment and management is really about the testing, The ongoing assessment and management is really about the management of a confirmed COVID-positive patient. Age residential um, care assessment and management um, is really important Um, and the other ones are pretty self-explanatory in that. So just taking you back again, um, under the referrals and advice, this is why I was a bit um, sort of confused earlier as to where our pages had gone and where our links had gone. Um, Just last night, um, we'd taken these pages live. We used to have all our referrals and advice kind of combined into one. Now we've got them changed into suspected COVID um, referrals and advice and confirm. So suspected is where you're going to get the information about screening, transport, testing and assessment of symptomatic patients Um, and also then the testing of asymptomatic patients. So under each one, you'll have a drop-down for your own region, Um, Unfortunately, we've had a couple of glitches and so uh, the um, Geelong um, and Ballarat sort of listings for the aged care um, mobile testing don't actually reflect that they also do the disability in REACH testing, but that will be updated today, I promise. Um, And so then you've got the asymptomatic patients for pre-surgery or freight um, and the listings are places that do those. Um, Then we've got in the confirmed, that's where you've got the clinical care in the home um, and contact tracing contacts. So um, they're the main sort of new changes that we've had. Um, Taking back here, the practice management and technology, we've had a few different links um, changed with that. Um, That's where telehealth sits if you're ever looking for any support on that. Um, The main things that you'll notice this week that have changed in the initial assessment and management, everything's been sort of neatened up a little bit and changed into drop-downs. The other things that I just wanted to share with you quickly, um, there are a couple of things happening this week um, just from a um, sort of disability services perspective. There's a COVID-19 community services digital forum on tonight um, and there's also a Facebook Live um, Victorian Councillor Social Services um, community sort of um, event on tonight as well. They're on at the same time. The other things that I really wanted to flag is that Safer Care Victoria is doing a healthcare wellbeing webinar series um, and that's really important in terms of caring for the carers um, out there. So while these ones are sort of focused um, sort of on, like some of them have been focused on the um, sort of Frontline workers, they're going to be, uh, have different, slightly different focuses on each one of them, and they're recorded for further use. So we'll put all the links of those into the um, emails out. So thank you all, and we'll catch you next week.
0: So next week, we're going to continue on and we're going to have Steph Gunn, CEO of Gateways, come to talk to us about re-engagement and really helping families moving back into the community and working out how to think smart around um, re-engaging supports and services. um, As Deb describes, as our epidemiology changes, how can we help families work out how quickly or slowly to put on the um, pedal in regards to re-engagement what are some of the issues that this sector are going to face as they do re-engage and perhaps some of our um, these members of the community may struggle with social distancing and um, PPE Um, so you know what what are the implications there that we might need to kind of help and um, educate our community about Um, and also thinking about you know crowding and workplaces and schools and and you know how to kind of think smart about that progressing us into a session in two weeks time about schools. This series was brought to you by the West Vic PHN. I'm Bianca Forrester and I'm the GP facilitator for this series. I'd like to acknowledge the work of Gemma Misbach, Natalie Love, Fiona Quigley, Matt Dixon and Kate Graham for their work in coordination, support and contribution to this series. These audio catch-ups are produced by Gemma Misbach, myself and Jade Buller. Come along and join the discussions on Thursday mornings at 7.30am via Zoom. You can register on the West Vic PHN website by looking up Project ECHO COVID-19. All sessions are RACGP and ACRAM accredited as a time-based activity and CPD certificates are available for non-GP participants. Thanks for listening and join us again next time.